Welcome to SEI Science Perspectives, a podcast brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. In this podcast, we'll be discussing emerging literature spanning the full spectrum of SEI research, from discovery to clinical application. You're listening to a Community Perspectives episode with Dr. Stephen Kirschblum. My name is Marla, and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm David, your other host. Today, we are discussing a paper titled Characterizing Neurological Recovery After Traumatic Spinal Cord Injury, which was published in the Journal of Neurotrauma by Kirschbrum et al. in 2021. This paper was advised to us, the podcast, by Asia's International Standards Committee. Our guest today is Dr. Stephen Kirschbrum. Stephen Kirschbloom is a professor and chair of the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School and the Chief Medical Officer for Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation and Kessler Foundation. He is the co-director of the Northern New Jersey Spinal Cord Injury Model Systems and co-director for the Center for Spinal Stimulation at Kessler Foundation. Welcome, Dr. Kirschbloom. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so if we can start off here just with a brief comment on the terminology that we'll be using. So I know that a lot of people who have had this exam done, people with spinal cord injuries, might be referring to this exam as their Asia exam, yet we might refer to this as the Inski exam. Can you talk a little bit about the history of the name? Sure. It is fine to call it the Asia exam because that has sort of become the lingo that everyone uses. Inski stands for the International Standards of Neurological Classification of Spinal Cord Injury. And and that's because the examination was initially described as the ASIA exam. ASIA stands for American Spinal Injury Association. ASIA is the acronym. And that's an organization that uh, initially developed a committee to really put the exam down in specific terminology. Over the course of years, colleagues from uh, the international community were also a part of this. And then became, once it was adopted by everyone, it then became known as the international standards. But it has a very long name and people got used to using the Asia exam as the terminology. INSKI is fine, it's a tough acronym, but it is all the same. It's the examination of the muscles on each side of the body, five muscles in the upper extremity and five in the lower extremity each side, and different aspects of the sensory exam for pinprick and light touch on both sides of the body, and then also performing the rectal examination. So a lot of the target audience for these episodes will have this, have had this exam done to them, right? And they probably remember it was long, a lot of things were done. And all of this information was compressed into like two things. So what are the two things that people should be taking away from this exam? I think that there's a number of issues they should be taking away. One is is that it really is a comprehensive examination and there's a lot of information that the clinician and the rehabilitation team, the patient and the family also can use from it. Now, people may not think about that. They may just say, well, tell me whether, what my level of injury is and what is my severity of injury. So those may be the two things that you're describing. But I really believe that there's more to the knowledge we gain as a professionals from the examination that could be shared with the patient as well. 
Uh, and if we have time, we could certainly talk about that, but certainly most importantly, that the patients understand that the examination gives them a lot more than simply level and severity, which then they sometimes, and people sometimes say, well, that's gonna be my stamp for life. This is my classification and you know, bear it, wear it, and go on from there. Okay. I think this is very important to think about. Okay, so I have seen the results of this exam, that sheet, right? And I'm handed that sheet and there's so many marks on it. And am I going to take that sheet and scan it? Do I take a picture of it with my cell phone? Cool, we can do that nowadays. It's a lot of information. So how can I, let's say I've had the exam done, take away more than just this level and severity? Do I have options? Is there an app? You brought up Asia. Do they have an app that I can put my Inski data into? So you certainly, everyone takes a picture of everything. So certainly you could take a picture of it and speak to your practitioner that did the examination. But I really think that it's important for people who have this exam done to them to understand really what could be done with the examination results. So one, it offers to everyone the patient, the family, your loved one, the treatment personnel, a starting point to understand of where you are, especially if, if you had this done early after your injury, as well as to monitor for possible issues that may arise. At every level of injury, there are different medical complications that can occur and they can be different. So these are important. It establishes potential goals. It establishes what interventions could be done. It allows your entire team to talk to you about potentially architectural changes that are needed. These are all important. If you think, if the patient feels they're getting better or worse, to be able to describe it to their practitioner, and then they can get re-examined and then take a picture of that as well and keep an eye on it. And then also it does play a role in determining whether someone is a candidate for different research interventions. So both from inclusion criteria uh, if they meet the criteria to, to be enrolled, but also then as an outcome measure to see how you did based upon that intervention. So Asia does not have an app for this. Right. So, uh, right. I should answer that question. Asia does not have an app for this as of now, right? We always think about what the future will bring. There are apps that, you know, can, you can put the numbers in and it'll give you a, a readout of it but there's no specific app that I'm aware of that you can just carry with you. It's good. Now, now we have planted that seed, hopefully. Any of our listeners who are uh, familiar with app development, please reach out. <laughs> okay, so if we can back up here, though, let's say I'm going into this exam. You're going to perform the exam on me. What can I expect? What can I expect to go through in the exam? So I think that there's two aspects of the, as you say, expectations. So one is, is really important for the patient to understand what will be done. And the second aspect is what will then be done with that information. So let's start with what will be done. What will be done is I mentioned the motor examination in the patient lying flat, the individual lying flat. Uh, in most cases, that's the way it's recommended. And testing the muscles in the upper extremities and the muscles in the lower extremities, testing for light touch and pinprick on both sides of the body, and then performing the rectal examination. 
most likely the person will be asked to lay on their side and more help turn to their side to do different aspects of the rectal examination. So that's from the physical aspects of it. What they're expecting is hard in terms of, because to some degree, some people are thinking that there's a pass fail for their exam, right? Sometimes you go on the internet or sometimes some practitioners will say, well, it all depends upon whether you have a neurologically complete or incomplete injury. And so therefore thinking the patient expectation may be, oh my gosh, I hope I pass and get to that status of incomplete injury. And I think that that is a little bit of a, uh, something that clinicians can do a better job on and making sure that people don't think that there's a way you could fail this examination. You're doing the very best you can. The job of the physician is to be able to diagnose, to then figure out how to help the individual, help you, the listener, be as good as, as can be. So I think that's really number one. The expectation, I know that people are going to be anxious. First of all, you don't know what to expect. And then you see this almost, how could I explain it in terms of the technologically based advance of a pin, of a safety pin, right? You think about how advanced we could all be, and then we come with the safety pin. And of course, we explain, well, it's a very clean one. We don't, we're not reusing it. So think, where are they going to put that pin? So I, I can only imagine how terrifying it may be, but I think that it's important to recognize that it doesn't, while the examination is important, it is the starting line. And without that starting line, no one can help any individual get to as far as they want to get to within the mission of rehabilitation and lifelong care within, with a spinal cord injury. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good point. Another thing that sort of comes to mind with that as well is, you know, how can it be that, say, a person with a spinal cord injury is at the gym doing rehabilitation and they get to talking with another person, you know, there for a similar reason and they find come to find out they have a, the same AIS grade, the same score, but are able to, you know, accomplish different tasks. How is that possible? And what can a person that has a spinal cord injury do to really optimize their independence? Because at the end of the day, that's kind of what we do, what it's all about. Yeah, those are really important questions. And I have to tell you that it's challenging because during non-COVID times, so many of the patients talk to each other. I have the chance to to rehabilitate together, both on the inpatient side, the outpatient side, and you want them to be talking to each other, but, and people do compare themselves to each other. That's natural, but it's important to understand that functional outcome is much more than just level and severity. And that's why Dave, when you asked before people, there's more than just two aspects of this. Two people can have the same level and age grade and function differently. And I'll give you some examples. I can have a size, whatever foot, and someone else can have the same size foot, but we're not comfortable in the same shoes. I could be just as tall as Michael Jordan is. Although since we're on audio only, you don't know that I am not, but there are many people that are his size or LeBron's size, but they're nowhere near as capable as he is. A lot of this is not just level and severity, the age of the patient, the body habit, 
those are two important aspects. The pre-morbid health, right? But the pre-injury health. But I, I really want to highlight this as well. The mood, family and friend support, community reintegration, ability to work, to participate in recreational activities, the opportunity for adaptive equipment and technology, all play critical roles in reaching the potential. So that, and in a nutshell, isn't that what rehabilitation is all about? Is trying to maximize every single person's ability to reach their potential, or maybe even go beyond what would be the normal expectation, but it's more than just level and severity. So let's say I've had this exam done Let's, sorry, I'm doing the hypothetical where I have a spinal cord injury again. <laughs> or, or my friend, right, has had this exam done once, like right after their injury and then a couple more times, but it's been five years. Do they come back? Is there any utility in doing so? We recommend that people get this in this examination, certainly at the beginning. Hopefully they go to rehabilitation and admission, at least a discharge, and then follow up and then yearly follow ups. Why yearly follow-ups? Because it's really important to be able to understand if a person, what their changes are. An individual with spinal cord injury may say, well, but I, I haven't noticed any changes. The role of the spinal cord practitioner is not to wait until the patient has problems. The goal of the spinal cord practitioner is to treat it, but also to try to prevent it, to try to catch it before it makes problems for people. I can tell you there's this one patient I saw that came to me and was coming for a yearly evaluation. And they, interestingly enough, gave a hard time about, well, they really don't need a yearly evaluation. They seem to be doing fine. So my secretary said to them, okay, you don't need to come. You know, it's not like you have to come. I said, fine. Uh, they like me anyway, so they'll come. Uh, but they said, do we really have to go through all that examination again? We did the pen. Turned out that the person had for years been a T2 level spinal cord injury. And now their sensory level had ascended up to C7. They had not even recognized it. We diagnosed the Cyrix, right? But after that, we found it. These are critical things. We then needed to make sure their bladder management then a few months later changed, but we now had the reason for it. Preventive medicine is so important across the board. We don't wait until a person is in ketoacidosis. Uh, that's the terminology for when a patient really fails in diabetes before we get diabetes checks. For people that are at high risk for diabetes, family history, whatever the case may be, we check blood tests, we check different things, and then we prescribe things that are needed for them. So too in spinal cord injury. And that is the reason why spinal cord specialists are so important because spinal cord injury is that common so the majority of physicians may not be aware of what the preventive issues and what to look for as much as the general practitioner would. Absolutely. I may have gone on a tangent, but I don't know if I answered your question directly, but if not, then just please. Oh, absolutely. So hypothetical me or, or my friend, right? They should come back, but I know at least, you know, my friends who have gone through this exam, they're going to ask me, Dave, if I go back, are they going to do the butt stuff again? Can you please like, just let people know why that's so critical for this exam? It's so critical from a neurological standpoint, but it might not seem obvious from the outside. I understand it completely. 
it's one of the reasons why one of the papers that I wrote a couple of years ago was patients would say, and not only patients, by the way, it's no fun necessarily. And I'm not saying that any examination is fun. And I don't mean to, to speak negatively or sarcastically about that, but you know that as a physician, I'm putting a patient in a position that is not something that they enjoy. And so therefore I don't enjoy it as well. And that's why I've tried over the years to see, is there a way that we can do without the examination? So one study we did, we looked, and this is with uh, Rita Hamilton and the group down in Baylor, we looked for whether patient report would be accurate enough. Unfortunately, people that said that they didn't have it, they were usually correct, but people that thought they did have it were not usually correct. And, and certainly that paper is out there. There was also another paper which uh, Ralph Marino from Jefferson was the primary author, where we tried to look at different areas that would correlate with the sacral examination. So we didn't necessarily have to do that rectal part of the examination. And there's another author, and I believe that it was uh, Zarifa, who was the primary author on that paper, who also looked at correlation of different sacral findings so that maybe you don't have to do the sacral examination. All of these papers showed the same thing. They were close in terms of giving you the same information. But close is not always good enough. Right? Sometimes we say that we can do a, and I'll take another example, we can do a rectal examination to look for prostate cancer, or we can try something else. But still, that is the gold standard to then decide whether you need to get other tests or not. The mammogram can't be a pleasurable necessary test, but it's considered the gold standard. So why not do the gold standard for this, for people with spinal cord injury as well? Uh, I'll say one other point. I know a lot of physicians, and especially the primary care docs, don't necessarily love doing it either. Not that they would, but because it's hard to get people in a wheelchair onto an examination table. That's a problem. But it's a real problem for people with spinal cord injury in general. So on one hand, they say, when I go to my primary care doc, they don't make me get on the table. On the other hand, I say, yeah, but that's a problem with people taking care of people with disabilities is that they don't get on the table because then they can't get all the proper exams that are needed. So certainly another topic for another time. Yep, and a, definitely a very important topic. And I think we're very lucky we're going to be having a primary care physician on with us in our next planned episodes. I think it'll be really interesting to hear his point of view on treating people with spinal cord injuries from a primary care standpoint. I think that'll be really exciting as well. I wanted to circle back on a, a sort of a question that you and David both kind of discussed, and that's really what is the takeaway for a person with a spinal cord injury or their family or their friends or their caregivers after undergoing an INSCI exam? Like what information should they take from there? What questions should they be asking? What sort of things should they be able to walk out of the room after having an INSCI exam? Obviously at different points during their neurological care, but what things should they really make sure that they fully understand after the exam and questions they should make sure their clinicians answering for them? Very, very important. And I'll summarize it. And then we, if we have time, we'll go into detail. The most important thing that a person who has this exam should come away with is, doc, what now? What now? Right? So it is not, this is the gospel of what will be forever. But now that we have this examination, we have my level of injury, we have my severity of injury, and we said those are the two takeaways. But what now? What could I do to be as good as I can be now, to be as good as I can be in six weeks from now? 
And what do I need to start doing to prepare for my future to not only go back to my family life, to go back to my community, go back to work, but what else is out there or could be out there? And what could I do to prepare for that as well? What's out there? Now, this is a lot for one discussion, but certainly that's the relationship that a spinal cord physician develops with their individual patient. And the patient needs to feel comfortable with their spinal cord physician to understand that it is not, you're not getting a spit out readout of this is the response and this is the result. This is, as I mentioned, this is your starting ticket of all the things that you can accomplish in your life. That's awesome. And I think that's kind of the exciting thing about what we do and the relationship that we get to build with these people that are going through this, you know, either traumatic or atraumatic situation. I think that's really the exciting thing about what we do as clinicians. What we do as researchers is really the impact that we get to have on these people's lives and how they get to, you know, remain as independent as possible, achieve the goals that are their goals and not necessarily our goals for them. And I think that's just such an exciting part of what we do and what we get to be a part of. So uh, this has been super exciting, Dr. Kirschblum. We want to leave you with kind of one last question that we like to ask everybody that comes through here. And that's really, if a person with a spinal cord injury is reading your paper, how would you hope they use the paper? What would you hope they take from the conclusions that, that you make in this article? Anyone reading the paper should come away with this. It is not them. And what I mean by that is, is that the paper describes groups of patients. If I have a thousand patients, 60% will do this, 40% will do this, 80% will do that. But they are an individual. And we don't live life by only thinking about, well, what percent am I in? We all want to be in that percent that could do better. And I think that is what's important. People should not lose hope. They may be given a prognosis and they should not lose hope that they can't be part of the small percentage that get better. It's why we buy lottery tickets for those of us to do. The percentages of winning is much less than converting if you're a complete injury or getting better. But, and I don't mean it to be in any way, sarcastic in any way, our job is to give the information, and this paper gives information about a baseline and statistics. But we all need to figure out what could we do to be the best versions of ourselves today and tomorrow, but never losing hope of what the next day after that will bring. I'll leave you with this. I came into the field that was a field of doom and gloom, a field that People said to me, why would you go into spinal cord injury? There is no hope for people with spinal cord injury. And now in 2022, we think about, wow, there's tremendous hope. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone that is cured tomorrow, but it means that the knowledge we have today so surpasses what we had five years, years ago and 10 years ago. And the knowledge we'll have from now, three years and five years from now are great. So don't, no one should give up hope. They should continue to remain strong, remain involved, remain engaged, remain healthy, so that they too can take advantage of newer papers that will come out for interventions. Thanks, Dr. Kirschbloom. Thank you. Great job. Thanks, y'all, for tuning in for this episode of the first season of SCI Science Perspectives. 
brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. The paper discussed in this episode was chosen based on the recommendations of Asia's International Standards Committee. This podcast is made possible by the leadership of Dr. Suzanne Groh and the efforts of the producers and your hosts, Marla Pitriello, David McMillan, and Asia's front office. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, contact us at sciperspectivespodcast at gmail.com. Later. Thank you.